Welcome to Finding Medina, Episode 1, The Roads to Revolution. I'm Brandon Seal. Texas in the early 1800s was defined by its isolation. Monclova, the capital of neighboring Coahuila, was 300 miles away and was itself little more than a frontier outpost. Saltillo, at 400 miles away, was Texas's real connection to the rest of New Spain, though just as often Tejanos looked to the east, to the markets of Louisiana, to access the broader world. San Antonio, with around 2,000 inhabitants, contained 80% or so of the non-Indian population of the province in 1800, and served as the capital and only polity in the province with any form of recognized government. And yet San Antonio, frankly, was lucky to still be on the map in 1800. In 1767, a royal inspector recommended that the entire province of Texas, quote, be returned to the Indians, end quote, who in truth remained the masters of the province. Europeans came to Texas on Native Americans' terms, and Tejanos, almost by definition, were among the few who were truly able to meet them on those terms. Yet rather than admire Tejanos' toughness, peninsular-born Spanish authorities harbored deep suspicions towards these frontiersmen. Some of this was certainly racial. If you believe the census designations, almost two-thirds of San Antonians in the late 18th century claimed some form of African ancestry, to say nothing of the innumerable other admixtures of Native American and European bloodlines in the little frontier community. Royal authorities didn't know what to make of this, quote, ragged band of men of all colors, end quote, much less of their never-ending lawsuits, petitions, and electioneering. The diversity of early San Antonio gave it a reputation for fractiousness, though in reality, this diversity created quite a dynamic and vibrant polis. In most other new Spanish frontier towns, a city council position was held for life, and vacancies were filled by appointment, bequeathed to an heir, or sold to the highest bidder. Yet within two decades of the formation of San Antonio's first city council, councilmen and mayors were rolling off and stepping down with their successors determined by annual open elections. Early Tejanos became semi-autonomous and self-governing because they had to be owing to the inefficiencies of New Spain's bureaucratic system. Tejanos reported to San Luis Potosí for tax matters, to Monclova for political matters, to Chihuahua and Monterrey for military matters, and to Guadalajara for legal and religious matters. Responses took months when they came at all. To most Tejanos, it seemed that the only time that royal authorities involved themselves in their affairs was to tax them. In 1778, the comandante of the northern New Spanish provinces toured Texas and was appalled to discover what San Antonians and probably most Tejanos spent much of their free time doing, rounding up wild cattle of their own initiative without royal authorization to do so. It was the kind of micro-entrepreneurship that the Spanish mercantile system abhorred. So the comandante ordered that going forward, all unbranded livestock were to be considered the property of the crown that the unlicensed killing of the crown's livestock would be treated as a crime, and that anyone exporting cattle from the province would be required to pay a substantial tax. And yet San Antonians weren't intimidated. They united their voices to protest the decree, tied it up in court, and defied royal authorities to enforce it. The dispute was eventually resolved in San Antonians' favor, 
Yet the 1778 cattle tax controversy was an example of how San Antonio and the rest of Texas chafed under the Spanish mercantile system, which was set up to enrich Spain at the expense of the colonies. Many products were subject to royal monopolies held by politically favored friends of the government, further inflating already exorbitant prices. And all finished goods were required by law to come from Cadiz in Spain through Veracruz, from there to Mexico City, from there to Querétaro, from there to Saltillo, and finally from there to San Antonio, having been marked up and taxed at each stop along the way. Restrained by their own laws from improving their economic lot, the Janos did what frankly I think any of us would have done today. They became smugglers, taking advantage of their proximity to French Louisiana and the Anglo-American colonies, where they forged important cultural ties with their neighbors and began to appreciate what might be possible under a more open trade system. For this and other reasons, by 1800, much of San Antonio and Texas at large had begun to view their interests as almost antagonistic to those of the rest of New Spain. A traveler during the period noted that San Antonians referred to their supposed countrymen from the interior as extranjeros, foreigners. Tejano's ear-bending dialect grated on Castilian ears, and French and English were heard just as often in the province as Spanish. And the region developed a unique style of dress, favoring a mixture of fashions from Mexico, New Orleans, and North America, all tinged by frontier accents like leather and wide-brimmed, short-crowned felt hats. Mexican historian Vito Alessio Robles has concluded that by 1790, San Antonio's, quote, vinculación racial y económica con el resto de la Nueva España era asaz débil, casi nula, end quote. That is, that her, quote, cultural and economic ties to the rest of New Spain were exceedingly weak and effectively non-existent, end quote. And that sentiment could be applied even more broadly to Tejanos living elsewhere in the province. Alessio Robles again, quote, The landscape was admirably well prepared for a revolution, end quote. Working in the energy business and loving history aren't actually as unrelated as they seem. Both fields reward a fascination with maps. Both fields require a balance of hard-nosed science and an almost artistic level of creativity to fill in the gaps in the data, which are sometimes as dark as the ground into which we sink our wells. And both fields actually come together whenever you build a large infrastructure project, like a pipeline. Typically, such projects require detailed environmental assessments, which bring together archaeologists, anthropologists, and biologists to carefully survey affected areas for their historical and cultural significance. And in my career in the energy business, I have done several environmental assessments with Crystal Allgood from SWCA Environmental Consultants here in San Antonio. One day, Crystal and I were talking about the first season of this podcast, and she mentioned that on a previous project, she had worked at a location near the supposed site of the 1813 Battle of Rocio, which we'll discuss again later in this series as well. Well, that, of course, led me to tell her about another, larger battle that had been fought soon after Rocio, but whose location had been lost to time, the Battle of Medina. For those who don't know, the Battle of Medina is the largest, bloodiest battle in Texas history. On September 16, 1810, 
Father Miguel Hidalgo's Grito in central Mexico set off a war of independence against Spain, during which San Antonio very briefly became a focal point of this struggle when it declared itself the capital of a self-proclaimed independent Texas. The revolt in Texas was led by an acolyte of Hidalgo's, José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara, who assembled a multi-ethnic army of Tejanos, Native Americans, and volunteers from the United States. For an entire year, this Republican Army of the North, as they called themselves, defeated every royalist force that they came up against, making Texas the first former Spanish colony in the New World to completely clear its territory of royal authority. On August 18, 1813, the 1,400-man Republican Army of the North marched out for one last battle against 1,830 Spanish royalists under General Joaquin de Arredondo. The aftermath of the battle was so horrific and unspeakable that it very nearly disappeared from the historical record. The prospect of finding a long-lost battlefield, particularly one of this size, piqued me and Crystal's inner Indiana Jones, which I was to learn during the course of this project, lays just below the surface of most archaeologists' otherwise professional demeanors. Crystal immediately brought in Rob Lakowitz, the office director of SWCA in San Antonio, and Zach Overfield, an archaeologist with SWCA as well, who had worked on the Battle of San Jacinto battlefield. Crystal, Rob, Zach, and myself began to collect pretty much everything we could find about the Battle of Medina. Archival records online, in San Antonio, in Austin, and in Mexico City. Secondary sources, area archaeological digs, newspaper articles, internet forums, you name it, we were going to look at it. We started by examining the locations where historical markers of the battle stand today. A warning in advance here, I generally avoid overloading podcast listeners with names because they're hard to keep track of in an audio format. In the case of this season, however, where we're exploring multiple sources and multiple people's theories, I think it's important to properly credit people for the work they've done. That said, for the purpose of following along with the story, it isn't critical that you keep track of all of them, though I will try to conspicuously flag the names of the principal historical actors. Also, it's very hard to talk geography in a purely audio format. For this reason, I encourage you to go to rivardreport.com and check out the webpage that corresponds to each episode in this series to review the maps, if nothing else, that we've prepared to plot our journey. The site with the oldest claim to a Battle of Medina connection is El Carmen Church, located in the community of Losoya, Texas, just outside San Antonio's city limits on the southern bank of the Medina River. To be fair, the church doesn't actually claim to be the site of the battle, but the church has long traced its founding to the construction of a crypt by Royalist General Joaquin de Arredondo, honoring his dead from the battle. No one has confirmed this archaeologically, though the church community has twice authorized researchers to dig on their grounds, though in both instances, a lack of funds prevented more thorough investigation. Three different historical markers actually do claim to be on or very near the battle site. The first such marker was placed in 1936 on modern-day 281, just a few hundred yards south of the Medina River, effectively on the campus of Southside High School. This first marker, claiming to represent the site of the Battle of Medina, seems to have drawn from the traditions placing the battle on the Medina River, an idea that prevailed well into the 1960s and 70s. 
After reading several of the primary accounts of the battle, however, Atascosa County native and historian Ted Schwartz grew skeptical of this idea. He had grown up several miles south of the 1936 battle marker on the other side of a sandy oak forest known in Spanish as the Encinal de Medina. This sandy Encinal, or oak forest, is a remarkable feature in South Texas, a two to five mile wide band of oak trees girding the bare Atascosa County line and corresponding to the outcropping of the Carrizo Aquifer. In a way, the sandy Encinal gave Atascosa County its name. Atascosa in Spanish means sticky or boggy, like when your truck gets stuck in the sand, you say that it is atascada. Schwartz came to believe that the principal action of the battle occurred inside this familiar Encinal de Medina, not along the Medina River. Schwartz would spend the rest of his life studying the archival sources and interviewing locals in an attempt to confirm the battle site location. His manuscript would be published after his death in 1985 under the title Forgotten Battlefield by Robert Tonoff, a history teacher, Carnes County judge, and former president of the Texas Historical Commission. Schwartz and Tonoff convincingly demonstrated that the battle had not occurred on the Medina River, but had, in fact, taken place somewhere inside or very near the Encinal de Medina. After careful study of the old roadways in use in 1813, they became convinced that a small rise about 10 miles southwest of the 1936 marker represented the true location of the battle. And so in 2005, Robert Tonoff placed a marker at the intersection of Old Applewhite and Bruce Roads, though again, no archaeological evidence has ever been produced that would confirm this location. About two and a half miles east of Schwartz and Tonoff's site, and near the intersection of Old Pleasanton Road and 281, a different battle marker was erected in 2013 by Robert Marshall, a retired petroleum geologist. And by the way, note the energy business history-loving overlap once again. Marshall decided on his location for the battlefield by deducing the Army's respective movements based on their known positions in the days before the battle. He placed the battle on the very southern edge of the Encinal de Medina, where he theorized that a rested royalist army could have surprised a hot, thirsty, and fatigued Republican army just as they stumbled onto the open South Texas plains. The chalky-looking soil of a nearby property, he suggested, might be the calcium residue of hundreds of bleached bones in a mass grave that had leached to the surface. Walking surveys and some metal detecting have yielded a few possibly period artifacts, like a hook and a piece of a bridle, but nothing definitive, and certainly not the concentration of munitions you would expect in a battlefield. Others have proposed yet different locations. Avocational historian Dan Arellano has proposed a site about three miles southeast of Schwartz's and about three miles southwest of Marshall's. The late Bruce Moses favored a site four or so miles north of Marshall's. In fact, pretty much everyone you talk to who has studied the battle at any length has a theory of their own as to where the battle took place. Crystal, Rob, Zach, and I plotted these different sites on the map posted with this episode on the Rivard Report. Taken together, they help us define a general area where a lot of smart people have placed the battle site, though it was still a pretty broad area at 20-plus square miles. If we were going to find archaeological evidence of this battlefield, we were going to have to be more precise. We decided that we needed to get on the trail of these armies in 1813 and try to retrace their marches. 
And to do that, we needed to study the roads leading to San Antonio, both literal and historical. In 1808, Napoleon declared war on Spain and invaded the Iberian Peninsula, deposing the Spanish king and placing his own brother on the throne. Later that same year, Napoleon decided to undermine Spain's power further by cleaving off her North American colonies, starting with Texas. He dispatched an agent to Texas to attempt to raise the local population in revolt against their neglectful and now deposed sovereign, and to declare allegiance to the new revolutionary government of Napoleon's brother. And to be fair, Napoleon wasn't entirely misreading the political disquiet in Texas at this time, particularly in San Antonio. Like the rest of New Spain, San Antonians were splitting into two factions, so-called Royalists and Republicans. The Royalist faction strongly defended the traditional structures of Spanish society, in particular, the crown and the church, and it counted many of the town's most prominent citizens amongst its members, including the Zambrano brothers, José Darío Zambrano and Juan Manuel Zambrano. Born into one of the wealthiest families in town, the brothers were ordained priests in 1793, though neither overly concerned himself with strict adherence to his vows of poverty or chastity. That said, they weren't insensitive to the frequent royal neglect of their province's needs, they simply mistrusted the ability of an alternate system of government to provide for them. A sizable majority of San Antonians, however, subscribed to the Republican ideals coming out of the United States and Europe. These included many, if not most, of the members of the Menchaca, Delgado, Arrocha, Ruiz, and Navarro clans. These Republicans were enchanted by the liberal ideas that had fired the American and French revolutions and subscribed to the radical notion that human society had no need for top-down direction from a monarch or bureaucratic state, and that people might better be able to organize and direct themselves toward their own happiness and well-being through representative government. The entry of Napoleon's agent into Texas in 1808, however, totally scrambled the political lines of the Royalists and Republicans' old debates. Should Royalists support a Spanish crown worn by an atheistic Frenchman? Should Republicans continue to insist on a reduction of royal authority when suddenly that authority seemed posed to implement some of the liberal ideals of the French Revolution? Loyalty to king and country eventually triumphed. San Antonians couldn't agree on much, but in the end, they agreed that Napoleon's shiny agent was not their answer. They rallied behind the Spanish governor, who had been tipped off to Napoleon's plan, and arrested the Frenchman sending him to Mexico City for execution. Sadly, however, the fact that this comically inept insurrection happened in this remote frontier province full of known smugglers and individualistic ranchers actually heightened official Spanish suspicions of Tejanos. More troops were sent to the province, as well as a new and particularly merciless governor, Manuel Salcedo. His, by the way, is a name that you should try to remember. Back in Spain, a resistance government loyal to the deposed king called a convention of all Spaniards, inviting delegates from even the most remote provinces on the northern New Spanish frontier. It looked for a moment as if royalists and republicans might unite behind a form of constitutional monarchy to drive Napoleon out of the Iberian Peninsula 
and hopes were high, even in remote places like Texas, that a more representative and responsive government might lie in the future. The Spanish viceroy in Mexico City, however, decided that one delegate from the relatively central state of Durango would be enough for all of the so-called interior provinces, which is to say, all of future Texas, Nuevo León, Coahuila, and Tamaulipas. It was an unnecessary and inflammatory provocation to Tejanos of all ideologies. To Republicans, it looked like a clear denial of representation. To Royalists, it looked like poor recompense for their loyalty to the crown. For decades now, royal insensitivity and neglect towards Texas had frustrated Tejanos' attempts to develop their province. Now, it was uniting otherwise antagonistic local factions in opposition to continued Spanish rule. On the next episode of Finding Medina, Tejanos will finally act on that frustration. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out the webpage associated with this podcast on the Rivard Report at rivardreport.com. And please, leave your comments or questions for the community to see what new information we can bring out into the light about the Battle of Medina, especially if you have information that we don't. Also, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe and leave a review. Because if everyone who listened to this series left a review, it would launch these important historical events to the top of the charts. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend George Gaitan for letting us use his music on this series. You can find out more about him at georgegaitan.tripod.com. Thanks to my SWCA research buddies, Crystal Allgood, Rob Lakowitz, and Zachary Overfield, as well as San Antonio City archaeologist Kay Hines. Thanks to Brian Stoffer, our unofficial old Spanish document transcriber, to Samantha Alanis, our cartographer-in-chief, to Cesar Gutierrez, our unofficial Archivo General de la Nación researcher, and to UTSA's Dean of Libraries, Dean Hendricks, our all-other document finder. And for more information about our podcast and other projects, check out www.brandonseal.com.